All right, I need to get to Exodus chapter number 20. We're in our Ten Commandments series, and we're going to be in one short verse tonight, the seventh command. And that's verse number 14. It's very straightforward. Verse 14 says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Read that out loud. Ready? Go. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Read it one more time. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The nature of the message tonight doesn't lend itself uh, to a lot of joking around or sarcasm. Um, It's pretty weighty, uh, pretty serious, uh, you know, borderline awkward for some maybe. Um, As we talk a lot about adultery and marriage and the sexual relationship, I want to be careful tonight. But I want to be straightforward and helpful um, as I feel like this text can do for us. I want to just pray one more time, ask God to to help my mind and heart to work well tonight. Father, I love you and and know that the weight of this command um, in our culture today um, is is just heavy. And Lord, I pray that, that we would approach this text with carefulness tonight. I, I pray that, that we would approach it with humility. Um, we all need it. I, I pray that we would not, especially if there are some who maybe aren't married or not married anymore, uh, that they wouldn't check out in their mind that this doesn't apply to them. Or this is just so pertinent for everybody in here because sexual sin is running rampant in our society. And so, Lord, as, as best as I know how, I pray that you would uh, help me to, to get across this with, with the same type of clarity that I feel like you did in your word. And I would thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. On our way to uh, Branson, Missouri, last week for the staff retreat, uh, just almost immediately upon getting into the Missouri state line there, we... we saw a sign on the side of the road, and you probably know what I'm talking about, and there was more than one of them that read adult store. And it seemed like the, the, right when we got to Missouri, they just started popping up. So I'm glad we got David out of that godforsaken state. (laughs) I'm sure you've even read uh, a rating certification on a film with nudity or or graphic sexuality, and those are becoming very common. It says something like this, for mature audiences, or M-A, mature audiences. It's interesting to me that these adjectives, mature and adult, are used to describe sexual sin. It's as if sex outside of marriage is a normal part of being an adult. Like once you become mature, well, then you can commit adultery. Like you can come into the store, but you got to be an adult first. And when you're an adult, you're welcome. Yet what we have before us tonight, as short as that command is written, it's clear. God has never normalized adultery. He's never normalized adultery. Any kind of of sexual sin, for that matter. If you study God's word, he clearly forbids it here in verse 14. But then he promises to judge it in different verses in the New Testament. 
Think about this. Out of all the things that, that God could have included in the Ten Commandments, he chose to address marriage as one of them. And of all the things he could have said about marriage, he chose to specifically talk about the sexual aspect of marriage with the very simple command, do not commit adultery. I'm thankful that the kids aren't in here tonight, obviously, as I'm going to mention the sexual relationship throughout the message. And of course, I'm, I'm going to be careful to not be flippant or crude, but I'm going to talk about it because God did. And here's how I'm going to address the seventh command tonight. I'm going to break it down into three parts. We'll talk about what the seventh command promotes. We'll talk about what it forbids. And we'll talk about what it protects. What it promotes, what it forbids, and what it protects. Point number one, what the seventh command protects. What does it protect? It protects a healthy marriage. A healthy marriage. If you have your Bible, feel free to turn back to the book of Genesis. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on the screen. And uh, I'm becoming increasingly more, if, if you've noticed, passionate as a pastor about you bringing some form of the word of God to church. And I, again, if you don't, I, I want to put some verses on the screen and all of that. It, it, even for the ease of my message, working through my message, it goes quicker and all that. I'm not saying that like I'm going to hang my hat on this and, you know, I, I'm not coming at it in a, in a dogmatic way. But I just think that when we preach the word of God, it's super important that you see it. You see it for yourself. And sometimes I think when we look at a screen, we can come super disengaged really quick if we're not careful because we're so used to visual things on a regular basis. And so anyway, uh, Genesis 2, verse number uh, 18. Verse number 18. And let's read through verse number 25. What does God think of marriage? How to create it? What's his idea? Here it says in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he could call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help me for him. Do you see what, what the scripture did there? That, that God saw Adam, well, he needs a help me. It's not good that he's alone. He's the companion. He's a partner in life to, 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 to come beside him and, and strengthen him where, where he's weak. And then he tasked Adam with um, naming the animals. Mr. Draft, Mrs. Draft, Mr. Monkey, Mrs. Monkey. Mr. Lion, Mrs. Lion. Why? So it would dawn on Adam that there's no Mrs. Adam. So, so he would see his need. For Eve. That's why the last part of verse 20 says, but for Adam, there was not found it help me for him. It dawned on him. I need, I need one of those. I need one of them there, misses. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, which the Lord God had taken from the man, made he woman, brought her unto the man. And he woke Adam up and said, Adam said, this is the first words out of his mouth. He romanced his wife right out of the gate. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, 
and were not ashamed. So let's break that down just really quickly. Like, how does God see marriage? How did he create it? Well, first he noticed that Adam needed a companion. He noticed that before Adam noticed that. And then he, he, he chose that Adam's companion and that need would be provided through a woman. And then the union between man and woman necessitated separating from other relationships in favor of the marital relationship. And lastly, this unique uh, union was bonded by a sexual relationship between the man and woman. The sexual relationship would have made them one flesh. And it's, it's the physical union, the sexual relationship within marriage that, that is a peak expression of marital oneness. It's a key to maintaining marital oneness. It's a key to maintaining a healthy marriage. Here's the point. A biblical vision of sex and marriage begins with acknowledging that sex is a gift from God. He gave the man and the woman this union, this one flesh union before the fall. Get that right. It was part of the goodness of his creation. It wasn't until after the fall that this gift was distorted and abused. And you can read Genesis. It's almost immediately abused. The reason why I started this message with God's idea of a healthy marriage and and how much sex plays a part in that is because sometimes we can read the seventh commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And we almost think it means that sex is bad. Or that God is grossed out by it. But that's not the case. We need to be reminded that God created it. It's a good thing. It's meant to be a pure thing that contributes not just to reproduction, but also to the overall health and vitality of a marriage. But here we've got the fall, which caused this gift to be tainted with sin. So... Exodus 20 comes around. God places strict boundaries around this gift of sex. Not to keep us from enjoying it to its fullest, but to keep us from practicing the sexual relationship in a way that cheapens the gift of marriage. And cheapens the commitment to one spouse for one lifetime. That's what the the positive spin on Exodus 20 verse 14 promotes. It doesn't say don't have sex. It says protect it. It's a gift from God. Use it wisely. Number two, what the seventh command forbids. It forbids distorted sex. This is where adultery comes in. let's, Let's talk about the language of adultery. What does it mean to commit adultery? What is forbidden in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14? Well, the shortest answer is that adultery is marital infidelity. A little bit longer definition, it's sexual intercourse that breaks the bonds of the marriage covenant. I believe adultery is the ultimate sexual sin because it violates the trust between the husband and wife. And trust is everything in marriage. It's hard to get back. It's very possible to get back, but it's difficult. For this reason, 
Adultery does more damage than other sexual sin does to a marriage. The Bible confirms this by making the penalty for adultery so severe. What was it in Leviticus 20 verse 10? It was the death penalty. You may think, man, that's, that's overboard. That's a severe punishment. Why are the stakes so high with adultery? Well, the answer lies in how much God values the institution of marriage. And purity within marriage. In God's eyes, any sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship is deviant activity. It's an assault on marriage. It's a trespass against the God who created it and gifted us with it. Yet, isn't it troubling? Church, isn't it troubling how normal sex outside of marriage has become in spite of God's word clearly standing against it? It troubles me. P.G. Riken said this, with all the encounters and innuendos, the average American views sexual material more than 10,000 times a year. And by a ratio of more than 10 to 1, the couplings on television involve sex outside of marriage. This is because, as one TV producer explained, married or celibate characters aren't as much fun. You think about that. That's true. You think about TV shows and the movies that we put before our eyes. And how much of the sexual relationship shown in those movies is between two people who are not committed in marriage. That's sad. Church, I said that's sad. But we've got to realize that no matter how immoral our culture become, becomes, God hasn't changed his mind about adultery. He hasn't moved in his position. And he never will. Here's what that tells me. The church should not move in their position. We, as believers, have to fight Allowing any form of sexual sin to become normalized in our brains. We got to fight that from becoming normalized in our kids' brains. We and them are bombarded so much uh, with sexual messaging that if we aren't careful, even as Bible believers, we'll start to think more lightly about sexual sin than God does. The danger of minimizing sexual sin... Is, is that we'll underrate its danger in our lives. And eventually we'll let it creep into our lives. For instance, do, do, you, do you know why I don't have a lion as a pet inside of my home? Because lions aren't pets. They're predators. Well, our society has made sexual sin a pet. Not a predator. We put it on our phones and... And we put it on our, 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 our iPhones to listen to. And we put it on our TVs. And we treat it like a pet. And it's destroying lives and marriages because it's been allowed into the home. Like a little house cat. We have to maintain a healthy respect. For the power of sexual sin in our lives. Or else it will become a pet sin. And it will eventually destroy our marriages. That is what Exodus 20 verse 14. It's what it forbids. Do you get this? It forbids this. It's not optional church. Doesn't matter what the TV says. 
doesn't matter what the college professor teaches. Doesn't matter what your friends at work joke about. God's standard for the sexual relationship remains the same. One man, one woman in the bounds of marriage. And all God's people said. That's what it promotes. It's what it forbids. Let's end with this one. This is where I think the rubber meets the road for us. What the seventh command protects. It protects us against sexual sin. I want to give you two ways. This is where we get practical tonight that you can protect yourself from sexual sin and from violating the seventh command. First, cultivate the sexual relationship inside of your marriage. This is a biblical idea. Consider Proverbs 5. You don't have to go there. I'm going to put these on the screen, but I want to give you the context of Proverbs 5. We're going to start reading in verse 15. But before verse 15 comes, Solomon speaks to his son, Rehoboam. And and he is telling him, stay away from sexual temptation. Avoid it. Flee from what he calls the strange woman. Stay away from any type of sexual activity outside of marriage, son. Don't go near it. He says this, "Don't, don't even come nigh the door. Just stay as far away from it as you can. And I think that's good advice no matter how old you are. But then he gets to verse 15 through 19 or so, and and he says, let me give you a good way to protect your marriage, to protect your purity inside your marriage. This is a great way, son. Listen to me. And he gets very graphic. He says, drink water, starts general, metaphoric, drink waters out of thine own cistern and running waters out of thine own well. Verse 18, let thy fountain be blessed. And rejoice, enjoy the wife of thy youth. Let her be, he gets graphic, as the loving hind and pleasant roe. Sexual, let her breast satisfy thee at all times. And be thou ravished, are intoxicated always with her love. In other words, one of the surest ways to protect your marriage from adultery is to foster the sexual relationship With your spouse. It's a gift from God to be used wisely and regularly. Author Tim Keller calls sex within marriage covenant cement. Covenant cement. He said it it helps hold your marriage secure. That's why the Apostle Paul actually commands, and we're about to study it. He commands couples to have sex. Why? Because it's super glue that bonds us together in a protective way against sexual sin. I don't want to be crude. I don't want to be awkward. But I want to be clear. God says if you're married and you can, have sex. That's what he says. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 through 5. Here's where it gets very, very imperative in the epistles. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman outside of marriage. I should have nevertheless 
to avoid fornication, which is what he's talking about there in that first verse, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. Serve her. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. What's he talking about? Is he talking about giving breakfast in bed? Nope. He's going to get very explicit. He's talking about sex. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And we'll talk about that in a second. Likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Just let me stop there so that you don't get caught up in an objection there. That, that, is, that is not condoning abuse in any way. You understand that? That's not saying, well, I guess my body's my husband's. He can do whatever he wants with it. And vice versa. That is, that is not Bible. That is not God's heart. That's not, you ought to protect yourself against that at all cost. I'm glad that we have even sinners right here. Domestic violence sinners, abuse sinners that can help with that kind of stuff. Okay. What is Paul talking about then? What, what is he talking about? He explains it. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent, mutual consent for a time. Why? So that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and then come together again. In other words, the plan isn't that you stay sexually apart forever. Come together again. Why? So that Satan tempt ye not for your incon- incontinence, incontinency. I don't know how to say that word. I like how it really means because you lack self-control. That's what it means. So Paul says this. Because immorality is so common. Men, have sex with your wife. Because immorality is so common. Women, have sex with your husband. In verse 3, he said... Husbands and wives, this is an imperative command, shall fulfill this marital duty to each other. In verse 4, he gives even a stronger statement that that you don't have rights or power, authority over your own body. He's saying that that the overall principle is is that, that you ought to give yourself as much as is possible. You ought to selflessly and sacrificially give yourself to your husband, not defraud yourself to your wife or, or your husband or deprive them of the sexual relationship. Now, what's this all about? Well, sex is not something we withhold simply because we're mad at each other. Not, not that the two are the same, but we don't hold money over our spouse's head. We don't hold food over their head. A lot of couples hold sex over their head. The operating principle in the passage is be selfless in giving to one another. Be benevolent, Paul says. What does that look like practically? Well, husbands and wives, listen. Pay close attention to the health of your sexual relationship. Close attention to it. We all know, and there's space and grace for medical circumstances and some other variables that that can affect this. In 16 years of counseling, I, I have learned that there is a lot of variables that go into play in this. And and for me to just throw an over-the-blanket statement is pretty unfair because there's a lot of situations, health and and otherwise that, that come into play here. So I'm, I'm not trying to guilt anybody 
that, that it falls under one of those categories. I mean, Paul even mentions an appropriate sexual separation that maybe might be necessary for a small space of time. But here's the point. You, you need to look at your own marital context and you're smart enough to know what a healthy sexual relationship looks like for you and your spouse. And it's different for everyone. So if in the context of your own marriage, it doesn't seem healthy to you, you, you know it's not healthy, that's a symptom you need to pay attention to and that's something you need to talk about. Now I know that, that talking about sex can lead to an occasional argument. It, it can be really awkward if it's not part of your regular conversations. But listen, it's so important to work through those conversations, not let it be an elephant in the room of marriage instead of going down like this road of coldness to each other. Or worse, some type of adultery. Um, when Jenny and I visit with marriages, this is not something that, that we don't talk, refuse to talk about. We, we talk about this. I'm burdened as a pastor by how many married couples don't discuss these things. They just don't talk about them. They'll fight about a lot of other stuff, but, but this is like off limits. And it's such a gift from God and such a vital part of marital oneness. And such, such an indicator of genuine marriage health in, in most regards. That to not talk about it is robbing yourselves of growth in that area. And I know that, that if that's never anything you've been taught or something you're like, I don't even know how to bridge that conversation. Um, if, if you're the husband, come talk to me about that. Seriously, I, I'd love to talk to you about how you can have those conversations. If, if you're a, a wife, go talk to my wife about that. How do, how do I talk to my husband about this? She'll have some great pointers for you. The operating principle is that a healthy sexual relationship with your spouse is one of the God-given ways to protect yourself from violating the seventh command. You, you understand what I'm saying? So work hard at it. Talk about it. Enjoy it. Fight for it. It's worth it. Not just for pleasure. For connection. For oneness. It's very, very important. All right, number two. Guard your heart from other forms of sexual sin. Guard your heart from other forms of sexual sin. Now clearly having sex outside of marriage is forbidden. It's obviously dangerous. But I want you to be warned. And I really am burdened about this tonight. Most adulterous relationships don't start with sex. They start with inappropriate intimacy or inappropriate emotional connection. Women, listen, be careful with how close you are with guy friends. Even if you're a woman who's, who's more, even more comfortable with conversations with males, be careful. Men, be careful how close you are with friends or co-workers who are women be, be, be careful how emotionally open you are to them. Now, I can't always draw a line on that. But I want to warn you about it tonight. Not because women and men are, are inherently sexual predators. But because of the danger of our own hearts. 
without us even knowing it sometimes, we can fall into this trap of becoming too connected with somebody that isn't our spouse. That's why we have to be vigilant. We have to recognize when we might be vulnerable. We have to guard ourselves during those times because the devil knows our weak spots and he knows our weak times. Consider the story of Esau and Jacob when Esau was tired and hungry from a long day of hunting. He was most vulnerable to making an impulsive decision. It was at that time that he ran into the deceiver, Jacob, who was able to talk him into trading his birthright for a bowl of beans. Biggest mistake of his life. And it's the same way in our lives. Men, listen, the devil knows when you're not getting from your spouse the respect that you need. He knows that. And he'll send a woman your way that thinks the world of you. Makes you feel good about yourself. Looks you in the eye. Tells you what she thinks about you. The devil's crafty. Ladies, the devil knows when you're not getting the love and the time from your husband that you need to not just know he loves you, but to feel like he loves you. He'll send, send a man your way that listens to you, that, that gently affirms you, that pays all kinds of attention to you. And if you're not careful, you'll become dependent on his affirmations more than your husband's. Without even knowing it, you'll give your heart to somebody. And it's really hard to chase down your heart and give it back to the person it belongs to. That's where adultery starts. Not not in the bedroom. It starts at the workplace. It starts not with sex, but with an appropriate emotional connection. And I want to be clear. It can happen right here at Fellowship Baptist Church. We're not exempt from this. I'm not exempt from this. Many of us serve together and we work closely together and we're on mission together and we laugh together and we enjoy fellowship together. And that's even more reason to keep the right amount of emotional distance between those who aren't your spouse. Be careful. Another form of sexual sin that we have to guard against is lust with our eyes and in our minds. When Jesus talks about the seventh command in the New Testament, he applied it to what we see with our eyes and imagine in our minds. Anybody who wants to say that Exodus 20 verse 14 is Old Testament, so it doesn't matter, just needs to turn over to Matthew 5. Jesus raises the standard for sexual sin against it. Here's what he said. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. He quotes Exodus 20, 14. He says, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Jesus raises the standard here when he says that if a person wants purity, it's not enough to avoid having physical sexual relationship with someone who's not their spouse. If they want purity, Jesus says they must not even want sex with someone who's not their spouse. We shouldn't even look at someone who's not our wife or our husband and desire any type of sexual relationship with that person in our heart. Then after Jesus gives such a high standard, he gives a radical strategy. He said in verse 29, and if I write, I offend thee, pluck it out. 
and cast it from thee. In other words, if you're, if you're tempted to violate the standard that Jesus raised and commit this type of sexual sin, even in your heart, then Jesus says you should gouge out your eye. And you shouldn't just remove your eye, you should throw your eye away. Jesus won't allow for, for you to retain these sinning body parts in hopes of using them later. He commands that you cast them away and abandon any future prospect of using them ever again for sinful purposes. To be clear, Jesus doesn't mean you, you must actually get a knife and literally remove these parts of your body. If you study the Sermon on the Mount, he, he speaks in powerful metaphors. He's telling us that when we sin sexually, we must act aggressively. Every time we're tempted and every way required to avoid the sin, you're going to need to employ radical measures to limit your access and starve your temptation. And get this, get this. Employing radical measures are only a means to an end. They're not the end. We don't change from the outside in. If all we do is make sin harder to access, but we never change our heart, we'll find a way back to that sin. Employing radical measures is all about making sin really hard for a season of time so that God can have the space necessary to change your heart. Removing temptation to the best of your ability gives your mind time to reset. It gives those neuro pathways uh, or, or the brain time to form new neuro pathways. It gives you time to reorder your appetites. So that when the temptation becomes accessible again, you desire it less. You have heard that, right? When, in fact, I was just talking to Connie and Franz. And they haven't eaten sugar in a long, long time. Personal choice of theirs. And now they, like, they don't even miss it. Like, I, I can wave that, like, Cajun cake that was in there. Made out, made out of all kinds of bad stuff for the youth fundraiser. Did you try that? I can wave that right in front of them. They're not even tempted with it. They have no desire for it. Why? Because they form new neural pathways. They took radical measures for long enough for their appetites to be recreated. And so when it became accessible to them, it's less desirable. How do we stay protected from sexual sin? How do we stay protected from violating the seventh command? Well, we do what Jesus says. We get radical. Now why? Why? Why such a high standard that Jesus raised? Why such a serious strategy? Here's why. Because of the serious consequences. The life and death consequences of sexual sin. Look at the end of verse 29. And if I write, I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish. And not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. God doesn't forbid sexual immorality because he wants you to be miserable. God forbids it because sexual immorality leads to brokenness. It leads to sadness. It leads to emptiness. It leads to death. According to Jesus here, sin isn't complicated. There are two simple choices and two guaranteed consequences. There's the easy path of sexual immorality, which will kill you. And there's the radical path or or the hard path of radical warfare against it, which will lead you to the fullness of life and to the most healthiest of marriages. The truth is, 
I know this, you, you may have already experienced a small taste of the hell that Jesus warns about for those who indulge in sexual immorality. You, some of you might have tasted that. And if that's true for you, I want you to know something tonight. It's possible for you to know the life that Jesus promises. You can have it. Your marriage can have it. But it won't come at a discount. It's not cheap. If you want the life God offers, you're going to have to get serious about resisting your sin. You have to be aggressive. You have to take radical measures. Amputation isn't easy. It's extraordinarily painful. And, and it carries with it a sense of loss. But the reward is far better than the alternative. I'd rather hurt just a little bit now than lose my marriage forever. I, I really believe, I really believe in this last point. You want to protect yourself from violating the seventh command. You need to cultivate the sexual relationship inside of your marriage. That's not a weird thing for a preacher to say. I showed you in the Bible. It's an imperative. It's an imperative. If you need help in that area, the church is here for you. It is not awkward for me. It's not, a, it's not an elephant in the room. And neither is it for Pastor David. These are things that we believe the Bible teaches and that the church should be talking about in an appropriate way. And then do everything you can, as aggressive as you need to, to guard yourself from other forms of sexual sin outside of your marriage. What are those? Emotional connection with somebody that's not your spouse. If you have started down that road, you need to take a U-turn right now. Right now. Well, you don't understand the husband that that I've got. You don't understand the wife I've got. Well, God does. God understands. And God is not giving you an out. He's not giving you an out, friend. He's giving you friends to encourage you. But that friend should not be someone of the opposite sex. Because when Esau is vulnerable, Jacob is around the corner. I'm telling you that you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful. Give your heart back to the one it belongs to. Even if it feels like you are doing all the work and you're getting the short end of the stick and there's no reciprocation, you give your heart to the one that you vowed to stay married to till death do you part. Well, I'm not happy. It doesn't matter. That's not the end goal of marriage. The end goal of marriage is holiness, not happiness. It's holiness. I want you to be happy. God wants you to be happy. But holiness leads to happiness. It's going to hurt for a while. It's going to feel sacrificial for a while. But go read Ephesians 5. That's the theme all the way through there in marriage. Mutual submission. We just continually submit to each other. We continually say, I'm sorry. We continually forgive. We continually adjust. 
So let's review. The seventh command promotes a healthy marriage. It promotes a healthy marriage. It forbids distorted sex. And it protects us against sexual sin. I want to close with a verse from the book of Job. And I want us to pray this prayer together tonight. Job 31 verse 1. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Whether you're a woman that is forming an emotional connection with somebody who's not your spouse. Or you're a man that is looking at pornography. Or tempted to do so. Or you're just that close from real life adultery. I'm telling you tonight. Make a covenant. Make a covenant, a vow. God, with your help and by your grace, I'm going to fight this sin. I'm going to fight it. And with your sufficient grace, I will persist and I will persist and I will persist in fighting it. If you're single, pray this prayer tonight. Pray this prayer. God knows the longings of your heart, the desires of your body. God created you. He knows you. He knows you. So so just stay pure. You won't regret that. You'll never, you'll never regret that. But you're going to need God's grace to do it. Make a covenant. Dating couples. Courting couples. Stay pure. Make a covenant with each other. We will not have sex until we're married. Or we will not have sex one more time. Or again until we're married. It's never too late to do the right thing. Never too late to do the right thing. On God's roadways, U-turns are always legal. Always legal. Why? Because His grace. His grace. Well, you don't know, man. I, this, this message has made me feel as dirty as any message has ever made me feel at fellowship. Because it's like I'm guilty of it. And I felt like so dirty during the whole time. Then here's my word for you. Start making a covenant again today. Don't keep doing wrong just because you're just discouraged. Say, God, with your help, I'm not giving up. I'm claiming your forgiveness. And I'm accessing your grace so that I don't violate this command ever again in my life. Well, my marriage is strong, Pastor. Well, then you need to come and pray and make this covenant. (laughs) Because no one's above this. And you need to thank God for bringing you this far by his grace. And you can say, God, keep taking us farther. Maybe the right, some of you just need to get help. You just need to get help and you know it. And you need to admit it. You just need to admit it. And I, I want you to know, we, we have got so many people in our church, even outside of Jenny and I, that can help you in your marriage. So many capable counselors that can take you under their wing and help you with things that we talked about tonight. Don't refuse help because of pride. Don't refuse help because of pride. 
The truth is, some of you might think you have everybody fooled that you have a great marriage, but you'll be surprised. Most people know you don't. So, so, so we've got to stop playing pretend. It's okay. We go through seasons where we struggle. It's all right. It's what the church is here for. It's what God's grace is for. Let's work through that together.